There's this old Jewish curse. It's a curse, and it's may you live in interesting times. Yeah, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> these, these are them. These are them interesting times. <laughs> Hello and welcome at Five Community to This Month in Security. I'm your host, Aubrey King with Dev Central. And joining me this month, we've got David Wheeler from the Linux Foundation. You don't need to be an expert and spend a million years to learn the basics so that your software is unlikely to be part of, of a vulnerability. Akira Brand. Okay, I'm going to use this library. Is that cool? And I'm like, no. Christine Abernathy. Yeah, F5 has actually been a part of OpenSSF joined that the organization, I think it was last year, 2022, around February, March timeframe. Trishan Delanerol. Yeah, interested and want to see what folks are working on, just join any one of those open discussions. Boo-lam. We have an idea of how much these booths cost, the floor space of the booth, and you've dedicated potentially 25 square feet, 50 square feet to overly mammoth. Malcolm Heath. What are the main attributes? That, that would determine whether or not your model would classify something as malware or not. Sander Vinberg. The distinction you're making is sort of like, did the error happen in the person operating the system or in the person building and designing the system, right? Like, so it's like, if we write code and it has a bug in it, and we ship that to someone else and they run it, the person writing the code made the error. And Aaron Brailsford. So there were, what, three police breaches in the UK. Cumbria PSMI, which is the Northern Ireland Police Force, and Norfolk and Suffolk. All of those were absolutely human error. This month, we've got a lot to catch up on. We're going to be talking about OpenSSF, Hacker Summer Camp in Vegas, and all the latest happenings for August. So strap on those earbuds and get ready for This Month in Security. So this month in security, we've got a veritable cornucopia of subjects to talk with you about. In addition to covering the latest security happenings around the globe, we're also going to talk a little bit about the OpenSSF from the Linux Foundation and what that is, why that should be of importance to you. I also happen to catch up with an old pal, Akira Brand, from the App Security Weekly podcast, and we talked a little bit about life and operations, as well as some of what the OpenSSF is going to bring to the field. Also, we had Hacker Summer Camp occur this past month in August in Las Vegas, Nevada. I had a couple of my colleagues that were on the street, but at different events. So we'll talk to Malcolm and Boo Lamb about their experiences in Las Vegas this year. We're going to kick things off with a little bit from my chat with Akira about the OpenSSF and more. Check it out. What we did was we maintained a readout. We used all Red Hat at that job. Well, Red Hat based, right? So RPM, it wasn't actually Red Hat. But we we just kept an understanding of all the RPMs on every single box we had and tried to make sure that we automated any sort of alerts. So if we checked the newest alerts out there, like we, I had a Pearl Wizard at that at that job. So he would check the latest alerts that came up and then match that against any RPMs that we had on our boxes anywhere. So he would immediately point out, and again, because it was automated, he was checking this every day. So if something came out, we knew, oh my gosh, we got an RPM that's potentially vulnerable to this library. Patch that box now. It's an emergency. So so, so I, you had a way of telling. Yeah. There are much more graceful ways to do that now. There are lots of products out there that I saw at RSA that we're trying to focus on things like S-Bomb, right? That, I mean, that's what we're talking about. Okay, so actually check this out. I'm going to send this to you. This is a working group with OpenSSF called S-Bomb Everywhere. And they might be of interest to you because they're part of their security tooling working group. So I'm paying attention and going to meetings. What I'm actually doing is helping with their communications a lot. So now when you watch their... Social media, that's me. Yeah, there you go. Well, me and Jennifer. But so it's kind of dev rally, marketing, communication stuff. I'm not going to Spain because I'm just a contractor and I don't think they're going to send me to Spain. <laughs> that would be sweet, but I don't think that I'm that important. As I get involved more and more with OpenSSF, I'm also like keeping my eyes open for where I might want to get involved just on my personal time. Not until next year, just because things are super crazy right now. I have like three jobs right now and I don't really have a lot of free time that I want to dedicate to 
more technology. I want to plant plants. But for next year, I want to see and understand up until that point how all this stuff works so that I can see what would maybe be most beneficial to my job at Resilia. I have engineers be like, hey, I'm going to use this library. Is that cool? And I'm like, no, not yet. That's a really hard line to walk. And I really want to know more how other people do that too, because I can feel myself turning into the ministry of no, and yeah. I don't want to do that. So that's tough. We, in my last systems job, we attempted to do something like this. And that, oh my God, my last system job was 2009. <laughs> so, I mean, this is the way back machine, right? But we were thinking about this stuff back then because it was a reality. I mean, when you have a giant clustered environment with a ton of Linux machines, the problem is you do rely on old libraries and you rely on patching and patch schedules, but you can't always get patch schedules down right. Or let's say OpenSSL releases a vulnerability to the world and they go, hey, this is out there and we have a thousand servers to patch. I mean, zero day was, a, it's not a new thing. Okay, wait, so tell me about OpenSSF and what you're doing with it. And I wonder where our paths will cross there. Sure, actually. So my involvement there is very new. And what F5 is doing in specific is we're on the best practices board. So that's what we're trying to get involved with. Actually, we're talking a lot about some stuff that I think you would find very interesting. Christine Abernathy is someone who is really in charge of our open source initiatives here at F5. And so she's been really bullish on making sure that OpenSSF is part of what we're working on with the Linux Foundation. Speaking of Christine Abernathy, let's check in with her and David Wheeler from the Linux Foundation to find out a little bit more about OpenSSF. What what brought me here today was, was talking to Christine a little bit about what has been happening between F5 and Linux Foundation so far as OpenSSF is concerned. Really, I just was hoping to get an, an update so I could give the community back an understanding of just where we are with this and, and what kinds of things they can expect to, to see produced out, out of this effort. Yeah, F5 has actually been a part of OpenSSF. We joined that, uh, the organization, I think it was last year, 2022, around February, March timeframe. And uh, so that's kind of like our, our entry into that. And I'd love to get David because he knows much more about Linux Foundation to sort of like frame what is the OpenSSF, the why. Sure. So I'll do the quick jump in. So basically, I don't think it's a big secret that open source software is used all over the place. Okay. If you look at the latest studies, it depends a little bit on the exact inputs and and data sets you're using, but current estimates are on average, the average application contains anywhere from 80 to 90% open source software components. So it's no longer a question of, are you using open source software? You're either using it directly or indirectly, but if you're using a computer, you're using open source software. Now, there's a lot of great pluses for open source software for security, but it's not any kind of guarantee that just because some software is open source, it's automatically more secure. It's automatically secure no matter what. There are some advantages, potential advantages, but potential has to turn into reality. And in addition, unfortunately, there's a lot of attackers, some of whom are absolutely performing attacks, attacking open source software and so on. So the Open Source Software Foundation was essentially created to improve the security of, say, the open source ecosystem, basically all that open source software, the infrastructure, everything around it, so that the open source software that all of us depend on it is going to be more secure, harder to attack, all those all those good things that we want. And Trisha, is there something that I didn't say? <laughs> no, I think I just add uh, as part of being you know, participating in some of the marketing initiatives and the community outreaches, we want to build best practices amongst the developer community with open source and security. But sometimes when folks are hard at work on their projects, security is not given the first front and center, <laughs> but it should be. <laughs> so, and that's sort of another area I think that OpenSF is striving to improve on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and okay. kind of like so, the makeup of the people who are in the community is also kind of unique. It's a pretty, a lot of kind of like big players 
in there as well. David, do you want to? If you just go to our website and you look at the list of the members, first of all, you'll see some of the biggest tech players anywhere from AWS and Apple and Google and Intel and IBM. But you also see some folks who you might not immediately think of, folks like Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan Chase and Ericsson when Capital One, because they very much depend on the software. But we have a huge number of organizations involved either as members or as participants in all sorts of different roles. I think that's actually the way it really should be. All of us really around the world are depending on the software. And it makes sense instead of trying to everyone trying to redo it themselves individually, pooling our abilities together. And I assume we're going to be talking about some of the things that we produce, but there's a number of things that we, the OpenSSF, have already produced that we think is going to be helpful. And there's more on the way. Fantastic. Now, I know, Christine, I've heard you speak about it online several times, but for anyone in the community that might have missed that, the F5 community, what will F5 be doing with the open SSF movement? I know some some responsibilities were laid out. There were a bunch of different categories where people could take part, but specifically, what will we be working on? So some of the things that we joined the security movement, because as we all know, and David alluded to, it's not the kind of thing that one person can solve by themselves. It takes a concerted effort. So we're F5, a couple of things. We want to join in and see where we could actually either bring our expertise and some of our experiences, but again, also actually see what is cutting edge and new and what are the industry standards in terms of like how we either consume open source software securely and also when we are producing open source software are we doing it using some of the best yeah, practices so that those are kind of like the key areas that f5 wants to participate in with regards to the open ssf so uh, over the coming months what kinds of things are we looking forward to will there be kind of mm-hmm. uh, any shows coming up or any sort of releases that are attached to this that the community should watch out for yeah, do we want to jive in, David, and maybe just do a little bit of like <laughs> how things are structured? When, when you have so many people doing so many different things, that's actually a little bit challenging to answer. So <laughs> I'll, I'll make a stab, and I'm sure I'll forget some things, and hopefully the others will, will, will all work together to try to answer the question. So the quick answer is the OpenSSF has already released some things. I'm sure we're going to continue to update and improve. There is an OpenSSF day coming up in Europe. I believe there's another one coming up in Japan later as well. We just had one OpenSSF Day in North America where we gather together. There's also all sorts of places where we go out and reach out. Let's see here. You mentioned what's coming up. Uh, I know right now you mentioned best practices. I know that there is some work ongoing to develop a compiler options hardening guide for C and C++, as well as just guidance for using what's called source code management platforms or forges, things like GitHub and GitLab and so on. How do you configure those to eliminate some security problems right away? We've also got a memory safety group, which is just kind of kicking off and is working out how can we encourage more memory safe practices, either moving away from memory unsafe languages, or if you can't practically do that, what can you do to reduce the risks in those? I'm sure I've missed uh, a whole bunch of others. I'll dive into a few more of those. Please. For example, the, the one with the source control management, that's one of the things that F5 is actually participating in helping craft that guide. But the one you missed also is the metrics dashboard. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, that should be a pretty good one. In fact, I'm involved in that one. When, when someone asks you a question, it's hard to remember all the all the balls because, in fact, there's a lot of balls in the air. And, and that the dashboard, we've actually had several efforts. We have and are working on several efforts to help make it easier to measure. Before you bring in open source software, it's generally good practice of, hey, before you bring it in, why don't you evaluate it, try to figure out, is that adequately secure? I mean, it makes sense in general before you pick to use something, you should evaluate it. But that's easier said than done. So we've been working, we've got several techniques to help, and the dashboard is planned to be a way to integrate all that different information into one place. Still working on it, and we've got some prototypes, and we've got some ideas, and I'm sure that we will keep working to go better and better. I had a colleague of mine ask me that I that I talk quite a bit with about supply chain security, especially in the open source world, and poisoning of libraries and things like that to include malicious packages and such. Will 
that sort of endeavor be encompassed by what OpenSSF is working on as well? Short answer, yes. Although things are more complicated because once you drill in, you find there's not one challenge, there's multiple challenges. As far as poisoning goes, a lot of people worry about, oh, somebody creates a program intentionally and inserts malicious code. That's actually right now a pretty small, very, very small proportion. The vast majority of the ways that someone gets malicious code as open source software in somewhere is something called typo squatting. In other words, they create a package with almost the right name. And there's a variance of that. There's something similar that's not the same called dependency confusion. But in both cases, they're not subverting the software you wanted. They're trying to trick you into downloading something else. And so we certainly have recommendations on that to counter those. We also have some efforts to try to detect and remove malicious packages where we can detect them. One of the other challenges is that in a number of cases, it's not the source code of the software, the text of the people actually program that's subverted. It's the build process converting that text into the package that people install. So we have other processes, things put in place to make those much harder to do. Anywhere from we're encouraging the use of two-factor authentication. In many cases, what happens is the account gets popped on the repository that people download from. Frankly, you eliminate a vast majority of those problems simply by using an extra token so that it's much harder to take over the account. There's other efforts, particularly something called Salsa to protect the build. We've been working with folks like NPM so that it's going to be much, much harder to subvert a number of packages so that we can have more confidence that the generated packages that you actually get are the ones generated from the source code people reviewed. It's that gap between here's what was reviewed, here's the thing you downloaded, you'd like there to be a correlation. (laughs) So we've been taking steps to mitigate those kind of problems. Yeah, that reminded me of some of the work that you're doing. Like, I don't know what SKF stands for, but the education. Uh, Software knowledge framework. So we mentioned there's a whole bunch of things that the OpenSSF does. One of them is education. Because first step to making software secure is knowing the basics about how to develop secure software. I think it's unfortunate, but a vast number of our schools don't teach it. And that's if you went to a college or university to learn how to develop software, a vast number of people don't. So that's a real gap. If you go to the openssf.org site, you will find a link to a free course on how to develop secure software. You complete it, you get a little certificate, well, you can earn a little certificate that you actually learned it. It doesn't take that long. I think learning is awesome. I think most people who develop software are interested in learning new things. And I think that that's incredibly helpful. What's coming up, Christine mentioned this security knowledge framework. We've got more work going on for education. You asked earlier about what some things that are coming up, but some things we already have now are things like scorecard and best practices match, where yeah. we can basically for... Best practices badge, an open source software project can sign up and basically trying to fill in a form of what are they doing? What should they be doing? How well you're doing that? Okay. We, in a couple of cases where it can determine automatically we do that. And scorecard lets you automatically measure a couple measures where we can do that. And so those two tools can help open source software projects improve their security, know where they are, know what they're missing and work to fix the things that are missing. Yeah, and I know scorecard adoption is actually going up quite a bit. And on their roadmap, they're thinking about things. They're thinking about their roadmap going forward. It's under discussion right now. And one of the things that they're going to be adding are things like GitLab support and also having scorecards that per ecosystem, because sometimes some ecosystems just need different checks from others as well. The challenge with scorecard is that when you're trying to automatically measure things, automated measurement tools, it's challenging. And when it was first released, it was only GitHub. And as Christy mentioned, they're adding GitLab, adding more detection, more tools, and just basically continuously refining as we go along. Just to elaborate a little on the best practices badge, I have personal experience getting a couple of projects through that process. Thank you. It's definitely a worthwhile exercise for an open source group to run through the questions. It's a thought exercise too. This will tell you where your gaps are in your security postures, like what you know, what processes you should have in place or don't and <laughs> run through that. And it becomes a little competitive too, because you get graded. 
like I think it's silver, gold. Oh, something. there's passing silver and gold are the passing three levels. Gold. And I had a couple of projects that we ran through and the teams wanted to be a little competitive to see who gets to gold first. You know what? I think competition that encourages improvement is an awesome thing. And I think Scorecard is, has caused that as well. So we're really encouraging people to do both. Work on getting a best practices badge, measure and, and evaluate Scorecard. Each of them has their pros. And as a result, you get more insight into where things are going well, where things aren't going well yet. Hopefully I put that kindly. I can't help but think that the scoring mechanism would help with some of our F5 customers that are are looking at S-bombs and things like that and developing that sort of thing in their environment so they'd be able to get maybe a, an understanding of how much trust they should put in the infrastructure or something like that. That That's really I, I, neat. I like that. Yeah. So far, I think the first step that people have been looking at for S-bombs is just looking, hey, are there known vulnerabilities? And there's nothing yeah. wrong with using that as a first step. But I agree with you. Once you know what's in there, I think we've had experience like this when we started asking for ingredients lists on food products. Once the ingredients list started to become a commonplace event, a lot of people did a lot of interesting analysis and what's going on from once this information was available. So I think that's very much a reasonable next step to take is, well, let's take a look. And in fact, we're, we're hoping to help organizations figure out you're using a thousand components here are the ones you're using a lot but maybe you need to help with or replace or something so i think that's that's absolutely a plausible next step i like the ingredients list we got to figure out what is the open source equivalent of high fructose corn syrup Get it out. <laughs> well you know what? i have an answer for you and that is fundamentally really old especially old with known vulnerabilities a software does not age very well there are a few counterexamples, but they're interesting because they're rare. In most cases, if you've got very old, particularly old with known vulnerabilities, that's a problem. And I think, frankly, that's the real push towards S-bombs today is that recipients have no idea and they are not getting any insight and they're hoping that this will give them that insight. Do you guys have any kind of last thoughts before we sort of wrap? So basically, I'll give a quick pitch on two sides. One is, you mentioned earlier a lot, folks don't think about the security. I think you're right, but I don't think it has to stay that way. I think nowadays the reality is software is under attack. It's not just open source software. It's all software is under attack. And if you develop software nowadays, it is necessary to learn the basics. It's necessary to write software with the idea that, yeah, this is going to be under attack or it's going to be part of a system that's going to be under attack. You don't need to be an expert and spend a million years to learn the basics so that your software is unlikely to be part of, of a vulnerability. So the other side of it is really, if you're interested at all in security, your organization wants the software you use to be more secure, please come alongside. So join us, basically join us. There's a lot of us who are very interested. There's a lot to do, but really with a relatively small amount of effort, we can get a lot done that will have a really positive effect for all of us. So please join us. It's a lot of fun and you can produce things that I think are going to be helpful worldwide for many, many years to come. I just wanted to jump into the join us from a different angle. So the join us from a different angle is if you are somebody who is just curious about security or an individual who wants to maybe you're early in your career, one thing that David may or may not, I don't think he did mention is that there is a, a sheer lack of people, cybersecurity professionals. So OpenSSF is a great place to just jump in and see what is actually currently out there in terms of things that people are tackling. And it's a great place to learn the foundations of what's happening and also get to maybe potentially tweak your interests and you can actually join the overall cybersecurity effort. So that's my pitch on the join us front. Yeah, and I just add to Christine's point, I mean, they're, they're open working groups, they're open to the community. And so if you're interested and want to see what folks are working on, just join when you have one of those open discussions. Now we're going to give you a little coverage from Hacker Summer Camp in Las Vegas. First up, we'll talk to Malcolm Heath about B-Sides Las Vegas and DEF CON. So you mm -hmm. did B-Sides Las Vegas and then DEF CON right after. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, for those who may not be in the know, this is sometimes referred to as Hacker Summer Camp. The combination of conferences that we have, right, we start off with, with Black Hat 
trainings if you're if you're lucky enough or have a, a large enough budget to go to those excellent trainings those are four days and then followed by two days of black hat briefings black hat briefings happen on wednesday and thursday b-sides las vegas happens on tuesday and wednesday so the overall app a little and then thursday is when defcon starts and thursday friday saturday sunday is the run for defcon and actually i just found out that there's DEFCON trainings that happen after DEFCON on that Monday and Tuesday. So you could do like almost two weeks if you wanted, if you had that kind of stamina. It's an amazing thing. I mean, there's 25,000 people or more, certainly at at Black Hat and DEFCON. Besides Las Vegas, I was really curious about it. I'm part of the Besides Portland organization. And so I've been to Besides Portland. I've been to Besides and some other places as well. And most of them are pretty small and pretty regional. Besides Portland probably has 700 people tops, right? Yeah, we have besides um, Rochester and it's like maybe 250. They kind of range somewhere in like below a thousand is, is sort of generally the rule. But there are a couple of really big ones like besides San Francisco is a really big one. And besides Las Vegas was ostensibly the first besides event and is by far the biggest in some ways because everybody's already coming down there for DEF CON, right? But it's still small compared to the other conferences. It was maybe like a couple of thousand people tops. So I love DEF CON and I love Black Hat sometimes. Mostly I love DEF CON. The challenge is with just often with just the size. I mean, it's so many people, so many events, so many talks, so much stuff to do. It's hard to get through the crowds. There's lines to wait in. There's all of this stuff, right? So smaller conventions have this neat thing about them is that they're easier to navigate and you can get into the talks that you want to get into and all of the advantages that come with that. And so I was really curious to check it out. There's two full days of programming and there's like five or six tracks. Yeah, lots and lots of options ranging from everything from like really offensive security oriented hacking stuff to stuff about career development to stuff about more sort of scientific approaches. There's there's just a ton of different things and they have there's a whole list on the website. They have they call them all something ground like breaking ground or proving ground or middle ground or whatever. <laughs> Plus, they have a really they have some great meetups, get-togethers, happy hours, pool parties, some other things like that. And it's a really nice scene. With B-Sides, was there anything like that that you took part in that, that you felt really sort of stood out as, man, this was a really cool piece of this event. I'd love to see this at other events. Oh, quite a few, actually. I mean, first of all, it was just super well run, which having helped run conventions myself, I know is is a challenge. And and so big, big props to them for for pulling it off so well. To be honest with you, the two talks that I enjoyed the most were, I saw a bunch of really good ones, but one of them was about the history of viruses. And you don't often get a historical approach. And and honestly, that's kind of like my jam as I love historical <laughs> viewpoints. So this is really fun. The only downside was, is that after he talked about the Morris worm back in 1988, I think it was, every other virus that he mentioned, I had direct experience of. <laughs> So I was sitting there feeling a little bit old because I remember some of the early DOS viruses and the master boot record viruses and all these other things that that he was talking about. But he had a really interesting perspective of showing how a particular platform technique would first emerge often just as look at this cool thing I figured out how to do. And then it would become kind of like, I'm going to use this to kind of poke fun at or troll people or and then it would become more destructive and more malicious and then get monetized essentially and he shows that pattern happening over and over and over again with the various malware techniques that he was talking about so less for the lulls over time okay yeah less for the lulls more for the money i thought that was really good one and then the other one that i saw that i that really stood out for me was about the role of data science in security because everyone's talking about ai generative ai specifically but just in general ai everyone's using the word machine learning everybody's talking about all of the transformative things that it's going to do and i'm not, and i'm not arguing that it certainly could but this guy was a data scientist who works for a security company and he was primarily trained as a data science, but he's got a pretty deep background in security as well. And he was, he was talking about how to build a team to do security data science. Part of why I like this is because he actually organized it around the idea of making a Dungeons and Dragons party. Like you have to have your tank and you've got to have your like spellcaster and you've got to have roles that are necessary for the, for the party healer. Right. 
to be able to get a good team together to do the thing. And everyone's got some skills and doesn't have other ones. And so you you want to try to hire and, and build your team out so that you've got a somebody who's really good at the data science stuff. Uh, and you, you probably want to have someone who's really good at the data engineering stuff. And you want to have some security expert types in there too and laid this all out. But the reason why he laid it out that way was because of his experiences in more naive approaches, which would be like the example that he used was some data scientists got a giant corpus of malware samples and they use that data as, as the training corpus for a machine learning model to detect malware. It totally makes sense. I mean, that sounds like a really awesome idea. And they got to the point on the training where it was like something like 99% accurate on the, on the data set. And with the samples, they were running through it. And the, the area under the curve, which is another metric that's used for these things, was, was very high. So they were feeling really confident about it. And they, they took it to a bunch of security pros. And they said, look at this cool thing we built. Would this be of use to you? And the security pros were like, yeah, this would be great. But, but tell me, Mr. Data Scientist, what are the main attributes that, that would determine whether or not your model would classify something as malware or not? And they said, oh, that's an interesting question. Well, first of all, it would be if there's any comments in the code that are in a language other than English. And secondly, if it was compiled with Borland C++. And the security people were like, yeah, no, <laughs> that's not going to work. You need to have the subject matter experts. And the data science experts are good at what they do, but they don't understand the security angles as well. And the security people know the security stuff really well. And so they can inform the model and the choices that are made in the construction of the model to make it more accurate or more applicable to real life. So that was a really, really interesting talk. And I, and I really liked to see a perspective that was, that was not just saying that AI is going to save the world or is going to ruin the world, but rather talking honestly about both the, the pros and cons, the amazing things that it can do, and also the limitations, and, and talking about collaboration between these different subject matter experts, be it AI, ML people or security people to try to actually build useful things out of it. I thought that was fantastic. Cool. Were there events there that were more like any physical security type stuff, like lock picking and things like that? They do a capture the flag called pros versus Joes, which is a sort of a red team, blue team kind of thing, as I understand it, which sound really cool. They had a big open area that was really just kind of hangout space, but had a ton of vendors that you could talk to too. They had a trivia night, which was always fun. It's a really good time and it's a very comfortable size. It's held at an off strip hotel and casino. To be honest with you, it reminded me of kind of like the earliest DEF cons that I went to that were very small and that were in a little off strip hotel. This would be like 20 years ago because you really had a chance to talk with people and get to know people and wander around and see everything. And it felt much more accessible, I think, in some ways. So mm-hmm. I, I really dug that. And then, of course, I just rolled into DEF CON after that, which is really, really different because it's at the Caesars Forum Convention Center, which is hundreds of thousands of square feet, 20 plus 30 plus thousand people, tons of villages. There was like well over a dozen villages, I think, this year. Not everything even fit in the giant convention center. There were some villages that were over in the Flamingo and there was there was just tons and tons of stuff. And that was a really good time, too. Mostly DEF CON for me is going and hanging out with friends and seeing people that I don't see except once a year at DEF CON and and that kind of thing. I'm always impressed with the people who run DEF CON because there's always some problems, but they always get it handled. And generally speaking, everything went relatively smoothly. With, with the one exception of Saturday evening, they ended up having to like clear everybody out and like do a full investigation of it. Turns out there wasn't anything. I had hoped to go. This, this was supposed to be my first year at DEF CON, but I unfortunately did not make it. I loved Black Hat last year and it kind of, it pained me to get on a plane and just take off and skip DEF CON. Like everyone else at the conference was like, yeah, well, we're going over there now. And I was getting on a plane. I've heard that the courses are really in depth. And if you're looking for hands to keyboard type stuff, DEF CON is the way to go. I'm going to assume that you're talking about the workshops. I've, my experience with the workshops is from a while back. It wasn't great for me. There was a lot of technical glitches in the two workshops that I was in. But I think that things are a lot better than they were for me. And, and it, maybe that was just my experience. I'm not trying to like say, oh, they did a terrible job or anything. Because what I heard from my friends who did workshops this year was that they were really, really good. And certainly just looking at the people who 
were teaching them. There were, there were some pretty well-known folks, some p- people that I know are, are really, really solid. And by all accounts, it was, it was a lot of fun and, and really good stuff. Plus they're like no money pretty much. I mean, there's like a nominal fee, 25 bucks or something like that, that they charge mainly to just make sure people show up. This has got to be my last question here quick. Thematically, are we still mostly talking about API security and AI security in general? I mean, is that kind of still the hotness at this point that you saw? Well, that's the other thing, especially about DEF CON and to a certain extent, Black Hat, is that they, they're not, how do I want to put this? At a convention like RSA or even Black Hat, there is a tendency, at least on some level, what the industry is doing to kind of drive what people are talking about. With DEF CON and with B-Sides events and so forth, it's really just what people are working on. So there wasn't really a theme. Like you could go to one talk and somebody may very well be talking about like, we used a machine learning model to do this crazy thing, or we're looking at generative AIs for offensive use or whatever. But then you might go to another talk where they're talking about, we figured out a way to glitch stoplights using high powered lasers or whatever. It could literally be anything. The old tape and SQL statement to the license plate, that type of deal. Right. Or a hundred other things, right? It's very, very diverse in that sense, too. Now to give a little bit of contrast, the real big one in Vegas, Black Hat, covered by Boo Lamb, my colleague from Dev Central, and his first time on this month in security. Boo. Last year, I think it was like the first time there was like a really big thing, API security, everybody was talking about. And we actually chatted with a number of folks who were really into API security, so we could see that pop up a lot. And so as I was walking around the show floor at the expo hall, you could see like a number of folks in within their signage really focusing on API security now. What I was surprised about was I actually didn't hear a lot about AI, whereas I would have thought I'd see more of it. Now, here's my theory on that, is that AI has become a huge thing a little bit too close to Black Hat in that we know how the sausage is made. People have to come up with what their booth looks like and stuff months ahead of time. And so you can't just go backwards and like cross out API security and then write in AI on there. So I think that's part of it. There's a few folks that were talking about AI. Everybody says they incorporate AI into their solution, but I was kind of surprised not to see as much of that. So still a lot of API security, which is a good thing, like even more of it. I think it's a good thing. People are realizing that they need to address it and they're kind of maybe led by the vendors coming out with solutions perhaps, or maybe the vendors are led by the customers asking about it a lot, maybe a little bit of both. It's funny, having been involved with the top 10 for LLM at OWASP recently, I got to say, I think that a lot of the security for AI is going to probably come from API security anyways. I mean, there are some other elements to it for sure, but I I do think that API security is going to play a huge role in that. And even SSL, right? I mean, where we have the traditional security points that we've talked about at F5 forever, what did they say when we were brand new on the Salesforce? They were strategic points of control within the data center, I think was like the, that was the big tagline. And it's going to be the same thing, I think. Whether you got to get humans involved in watching the conversations LLMs are having with other entities out there on the internet, or whether it's people interacting with your LLMs and figuring out what's malicious, you're going to need those same visibility points. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a lot more of API security in terms of the content coming in. So there's still injection attacks. The API traffic is still going to be encrypted. And with more pieces in play, I think there's going to be more security or or thought around business logic and getting around business logic. So if we can get around the front interface of your chat AI solution and we have direct access around that somehow, or that's just a made up example, but ways to get around all the different moving pieces to be able to start to manipulate the outcomes of interacting uh, with the LLM, uh, for instance, or other aspects of your API altering altering what people ask it, which could in turn influence what its output is going to be long-term. That's it. And I really think that RSA will see a ton of that because I'd imagine I think we'll so, have yeah. presence there. And now people have had time to really ramp for a year on it. So 
I think we'll see it. There's also a ton of gadgetry at some of these bigger conferences. Like you and I saw that, remember that IBM, that sphere that you could like spin the sphere and see your whole infrastructure and zoom in on the sphere and anything super cool like that. I guess what was the coolest thing you saw at at Black Hat? Anything fun? I'm trying to think. It's not necessarily a gadget, but I'm not going to name any names, but some of those booths where you have the big characters, like a big robot or a big woolly mammoth or some sort of animal or dinosaur or something like that. I'm walking around the booths. I'm like, what? This is a, we have an idea of how much these booths cost, the floor space of the booth. And you've dedicated potentially 25 square feet, 50 square feet to a woolly mammoth. I don't know how this ties in into stuff. This is not a gadget, but there's some sort of novelty there. And there's some sort of play into that attracting people to your booth, I guess. And did you notice a lot of F1 cars. Oh, nice. Yeah, that seems to be common. Like there, there's a lot of like fast cars at these. But did you by chance get footage of like these giant beasts? And no, I did not. I didn't get a selfie with one. I think the F1 thing is really well, maybe some of it. There's there's always F1 sponsorships when it comes to IT. I think in cybersecurity, we've seen cybersecurity marketing over the past five years or so get all of the money to get their names out there. F1 is a great way to do that. Not necessarily at first in North American markets, but around the world in Europe, Asia, South America, F1 is a huge thing. And now I think Drive to Survive, a lot of people watch that on Netflix. So you see a lot of people in North America really getting into F1 now. So maybe we're seeing less NASCAR, more F1. F1's coming to Vegas. That was actually the cause of some of the traffic jams in Vegas was they're doing construction for F1 in preparation for F1 there. So I think that's why I'm noticing a little bit more of the F1 cars at the North American events. Nice. My son just saw F1 for the first time this past week and he's like, dad, what is that car? And I'm all for less NASCAR, but I will put out a quick plug for upstate New York, right? The Watkins Glen, whether it's F1 or NASCAR, they both have events at the Glen. Always a great track. Anything that that really shocked you out there or surprises out there, Black Hat? Surprises. Interesting. I didn't really come across anything too surprising, but I didn't know that Aditya Sood, who I had chatted with, there's a video on this, but he was actually there and he was actually releasing his tool that does mass quick scanning of MySQL servers for malware. He's talked about it before. He's developed this tool. He's from, to give folks background on this, he's from our office of the CTO. He's the director of threat research and works on some really cool projects. And some of these projects you don't really hear about because he's working on them. There's a few things that he's working on, but this was one where he was doing some research around malware inside of database servers. He developed a tool in order to do that. And then he released that tool. It's called the Melee tool. I can't remember what the abbreviation is for there, but that was a surprise for me. So I just, I was in the booth. He walked up to me and he said, hello. And I was like, oh, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I just did this talk and I just released this tool. I was like, oh, let's, let's go through this tool. So if folks want to do a scan, basically it, it hops into your MySQL server. It looks for indicators of compromise. It's a really quick tool. Yeah, you can you can scan your entire environment really, really quickly. And he did a demo of it for me. So that's one of the videos on Dev Central and the content we came back with. So that was a surprise for me. I caught up with Akira Brand a little bit from the Application Security Weekly podcast. We sort of talked a little bit about security operations and what it's been like over time. Wanted to share a little bit of that just for some perspective, as she put it. So we have essentially like a vendor chart and a yep. process that we go through to vet all these vendors. And what I think I'm going to do, because I literally like just started doing this today. What I'm doing is like I'm going through that vendor like process with this open source library. And also like one other thing I want to do is like scan it with Sneak and see if anything comes up there. But the process for like a vendor is about it's about seven steps and it goes pretty in depth. And we do it with every single one of our vendors. So I'm going to do it with our open source, this open source library and see if anything maps. If it doesn't, then I'll have to discover how to vet an open source library. I have no idea. I will figure that out with the help of my network. Hopefully I will find someone to help me out or I'll just do it myself. 
that's just a, a challenging thing to me. The whole concept of that is really daunting. I mean, that we've come to trust all these different libraries through time. It, it kind of makes me wonder, we have all these attacks that are sort of back in time also this past year, like the CVEs that we've been monitoring that are out there, they're all very like back in time has been a trend in CVEs over the past year as far as what's getting you know poked at. Makes me wonder if people have really been in a lot of these open source libraries for a very, very long time. But I feel like it's just so freaking different now. How is it different like in your in your opinion? You have more of a context. So I think going back, we really had only a few things that really you could focus on back way back. There was DOS. There's always been DOS. I mean, it's like UDP flooding. That was the thing back then, right? ICMP flooding, UDP flooding. It was just flood somebody. And that was really the threat for a really long time. Obviously, HTTP, we have a saying at F5, HTTP is the new TCP. But back when this wasn't the case, you know, you had all kinds of weird protocols that were out there and that were all very hackable. So, but in, in different ways, now that it's all HTTP, really the, the hard thing, like when you started having all this dynamic stuff, like PHP for me was the big eye opener. That was where dynamics started coming into play. I got hacked for the first time as a blue teamer, I guess we called ourselves white hat back then, but as a blue Mm -hmm. teamer, right? One of my systems got hit really hard by just a PHP flaw. It was a misconfiguration. I mean, we see this stuff all the time in OWASP, right? A common misconfiguration because of defaults in a configuration file. So yeah, and it, it was tough. I had my security team contact me and go, hey, why is your server sending, you know, 10,000 emails per second? I don't think that's really what it's designed to do. Lastly, we're going to finish up with all the happenings from August. Sander, Malcolm, and Aaron gave me a whole lot to chew on. Check it out. So we're here to talk about breaches, though. I think that's yeah. why we have gathered. I was doing my homework a little bit, actually, and I was taking a look at some of the stuff we were looking at. The Met Police IT security breach. That seems to be a little bit of an issue going on right now, but I didn't see... Was there ever public disclosure of how they got into this contractor's workspace? Not that I've seen. Not yet. Uh, which okay. which raises an interesting point that what else was breached recently? The voter records, the electoral roll, as we call it over here, for all of the UK, was breached. The breach happened in October 2021. They realized in October 2022, and they notified in like August 2023. Yet we have these strict requirements for notification right in the UK as part of GDPR, Mm -hmm. which we're still signed up to. Apparently don't apply if you're a government entity. Well, uh, technically the Electoral Commission isn't a government entity for obvious reasons, because the current party would be administering the voters. But, you know, the rules do not apply equally, apparently. I found that while I was covering a a state, I guess I'm not supposed to say which state, but I was covering a state during my time here, and I was actually thrilled to find out that the Department of Elections had complete veto right over the governor. Anything the governor said, they said they could, nope, I don't need to, we don't need to abide by that. So there was a huge state consolidation and elections said, nah, we're, we're good with our IT infrastructure. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I'll just say that in my home state of Minnesota, actually in my home city of Minneapolis, there was a couple of school districts that got Hacked pretty hard. And there was a similar kind of delay in finding out and delay in announcing. And then like lots of delays about informing students and parents. And a lot of people were pretty angry about it, honestly, especially since it was actually pretty sensitive data. It was like essentially student records. So that included things like if the student was having psychological difficulties or medical issues or that kind of thing. It got me thinking that this is yet another reason why the whole sort of assumed breach stance that we've talked about for years is actually really important. And why I will always say that that focusing on detection and focusing on visibility into what's happening in your network is like the very first thing that I would recommend to anybody really, really get that nailed because it has the benefit of finding these things sooner and puts you in a much stronger position to be able to actually determine what happened or what the damage was. I don't know if it's too expensive or if it's too difficult or or what, but everybody seems very focused on stopping breaches at the edge, even though clearly we're not super good at stopping breaches at the edge. <laughs> An interesting thing about this was, it, and it seemed like the one piece of commonality here was human error in all of these stories. Is that a safe assumption? For sure with the UK, so there were, what, 
three police breaches in the UK. Cumbria, PSNI, which is the Northern Ireland Police Force, and Norfolk and Suffolk. All of those were absolutely human error. They were documents placed in the public domain in response to Freedom of Information Act requests that contained details that they should not have contained, like the names and addresses of all of the police officers in case of, and salaries and so on. But in the case of PSNI, names and addresses by far the worst part of that breach. That's could literally lead to people being killed. At the Met Police issue, it's not clear yet how the third-party contract was breached. I'm going to go with human error is probably involved somewhere <laughs> along the line there. Yeah. And, and it's not always directly attributable to human error, right? There's, I, I guess if you unwrap enough layers of the onion, you'll always get down to a mistake was made by the person behind the system. But Duolingo in the mm-hmm. last couple of weeks who had their data scraped that was a, an insecure API. Now, a human designed that API insecurely, so it's human error. But does that really count as human error, I guess, would be my question. I think usually the distinction you're making is sort of like, did the error happen in the person operating the system or in the person building and designing the system, right? Like, So it's like if we write code and it has a bug in it, and we ship that to someone else and they run it, the person writing the code made the error, right? In this case, I used to read all those breach notifications, right, up until the end of 2021, when I was released from that service. And uh, there was like, because I would read like 2000 of these a year, it took up a huge part of my year. And it was kind of edifying, also kind of maddening. But every year, there was like five to 6% of the breaches we looked at were just simple human accidents, right? Somebody emailed a a sensitive spreadsheet and the auto complete in their email address and the two thing just and they mailed to their mother in law or something, right? And and so like, this is all like operator stuff. And, and it always just makes me think that what we always say is like, oh, humans are fallible and we suck at this kind of stuff. And, and that's just the way it is. But there are so many other systems that humans run, like submarines and nuclear power plants and spacecraft and stuff, where these kinds of human errors don't show up. And so there's, there's got to be at least part of this that's down to like culture and budget and training and standards and like expectation, you know? And so mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's always really interesting. You know, if, if there's a human error that leads to a breach and it's a preschool and an admin for a preschool mailed out 40 home addresses, that's one thing. But you sort of think that the law enforcement folks would be on top of sensitive information, you know, you like it's just hope. kind of mind boggling. You would, you'd hope. I had the, the pleasure of having one of those emails sent to me. I had contractor status at one of my old customers and I got a sensitive document mailed to me and I thought in respect to the conversation we're having about human error, I'm thinking, well, whose human error was that? Because I know what happened. I know they went to the to field of an email and started typing somebody that they expected to mail this thing to. But I think I was still in the email system as Mm -hmm. a contractor. Clearly, I'm still in the email system as a contractor. So a lot of maybe multiple human errors, right? That's the person sending the mail and that's the person who's responsible for removing contractors from the email system, Mm -hmm. whoever that is. I think you raise a point about, well, Sander raises a point there about the other systems where you don't see these kinds of problems. Or, I mean, and you don't see them, I suspect, because if they happen, the outcome is disaster, right? Direct loss Uh of life, for example. If a spacecraft goes off course, right? The lunar lander whatever, misses the moon. If there are people on board, then they're flying off into outer space never to be seen again, right? Mm-hmm. That's terrible. That's direct loss of life. But it feels like the general stakes for IT and IT security are considered to be far lower. So much stuff just gets written off as unacceptable risk. We just record that yeah. on the risk register and we move on because to fix that would be expensive or time consuming. And yet IT, the modern IT environment, probably one of the most complex environments. Mm-hmm. A spacecraft has a single job. It goes wherever yeah. it's meant to go, right? The IT system is everything to everybody in a company. It's running hundreds of servers, thousands of services, even in like mm-hmm. a mid-sized company. One of the things that I think is kind of the most mind-blowing there is in, in an integrated system like a spacecraft, everything is going to be tested together. How many working IT environments today had the opportunity to be tested in their completeness before they went live. Zero percent, right? Because we're constantly adding and taking stuff away. So we build these systems with unit testing and and system testing, but we never test the entire environment until we're live. And then we just say, let's see how this goes. I think that's a really good point. And I think you really hit the nail on the head on one of the differences between environments where we don't see 
regular disastrous results, I always end up thinking about airplanes. It's absolutely amazing to me that the airplane manufacturers can build these devices that are in incredibly heavy service for 20 years and they mostly don't break. And if they do break, they don't break in absolutely disastrous ways, given the stakes involved when you're 20,000 feet up in the air, right? But I do know absolutely that they have tested every single component. They've tested every single subsystem. It's rigorous testing. It takes years and years and years to develop a new model of airplane. Yeah, it's absolutely different. It's so much faster moving. The one advantage that I think IT has is that you can actually continually test it. You can continually monitor it. This is me talking to somebody who used to be a sysadmin. We had a lot of systems. We had a huge amount of systems that were only there to make sure that the other systems were working Mm -hmm. and to alert us if something went wrong so that we could fix it quickly. That probably was a big expense. I mean, given the time period I was doing it and some other things, it it wasn't super costly for us because we mostly use open source and it was a relatively small shop as these things go. I don't think it was a hundred thousand servers and multiple campuses or anything like that. But still we have that advantage. It's interesting you say that because we were talking about this a couple (laughs) of days ago and one of the things that we were saying is it feels subjective. I don't actually have the numbers on this, but subjectively, it feels like the kinds of organizations that have these kinds of human errors are mostly not at the leading edge of, of tech, right? It's not Netflix that is emailing the wrong attachment to the wrong person, right? It is organizations that have not baked a lot of automation into their processes, right? And maybe like in the, in the case of Freedom of Information Act, you kind of don't want to automate that, right? That should be subject to release review. I mean, it's funny that we end up putting humans on tasks that are actually usually like really, really good candidates for automation, right? And a lot of these kinds of things that we're doing, just moving files around from place to place, like that's not a great use of a human's time. And it's a super good use of automated time because you get the error rate lower and all this other stuff. So so I, I can't help but wonder if if you would sort of see a differential in, in, in organizations just based on their ability to sort of move maturity forward in that respect. Two quick things here. One, if you assume breach, like Malcolm talked about before, which I think is super wise. I was just trying to explain that concept to a neighbor of mine the other day, and she was like, huh, really? <laughs> but if you assume breach, then think about the fix for what we looked at with Duolingo. Oh, my gosh. Like the fix for that is is so complicated today. We talk about expense, right? You're going to need human beings. You're going to need all kinds of technology for that, right? You probably need some sort of service mesh for a modern infrastructure, API discovery across the whole thing. And then like WAP and understanding of what expected API behavior is just to automate some of that functionality, plus obviously human intervention and oversight. Well, that's a fortune. The other thing I wanted to mention is time. I know we, we had another couple of topics. So, I mean, we're saying that the, the places subject to most human error are probably the, the smaller concerns, right? Or the less tech forward concerns, you probably have less complex systems. They have a little bit less to worry about, maybe in terms of attack surface or error-prone surface, maybe we should say. But that that doesn't mean that the, the tech-forward companies also suffering from breaches just for different reasons, right? Just totally. in the last week, two hosting companies lost basically everything to a ransomware incident. And that wasn't human error. Nobody emailed the wrong file to someone. Now, it might have been human error that someone double-clicked on the wrong thing. And process errors creep in or systems errors, a lack of monitoring like we talked about. So there was a lack of visibility or endpoint protection, presumably a distinct lack of segregation in the network, right? Because either the ransomware got in through some insecure web service that was exposed in the actual hosting side of the house, and then it ran rampant through everything. And by the sound of it, made its way to like the operational side of the house, right? Which you would think would be completely or as much as possible segregated. Or someone clicked on the wrong thing in email and it made its way from like the corporate network to the hosting network and then has essentially ransomed not only their data, but all of their customers' data. It's funny you mentioned that, Aaron, because I haven't focused on ransomware in 18 months or so since I was really last reading about it a lot. And 18 months ago, I was I was talking to, to customers and talking to other security operators and all these other folks. And I, I found myself saying, look, this feels really out of date, but... Network segmentation is going to go a long way here, right? This this feels like some sort of old school controls that are obsolete, but here I am in 2022 preaching this gospel and it doesn't feel like 
like a cool high-tech control, right? It doesn't feel like the future of security, right? But there were so many incidents that I looked at where it wouldn't have stopped the initial access, but it sure would have stopped the lateral movement or the exfiltration or, or any of the phases of the attack where, where all the real damage gets done in a ransomware attack. So I guess what was old Shelby knew, right? Saying segment your network doesn't sound cool because you can't sell a service off the back of that advice. Yeah, I can't right. sell you some AI tool that's going to spot infiltration and do some cool stuff off the back of that. All I can tell you is like network best practices. Oh, wow. <laughs> Hang on a second, Ari. You just said something super interesting. I just had a realization when we're talking about zero trust and we talk about behavioral analysis within that context and behavioral identity, it just made me realize that analyzing the behavior and what an endpoint is talking to and when it starts talking to things that it doesn't usually talk to, maybe you should like raise an alert or stop that. That's like essentially network segmentation just done really super dynamically on a case by case basis rather than sort of a more think it through from the start and figure out where these endpoints need to be in a segmented network. And so I wonder if there's some kind of thing about the difficulty of planning things out ahead of time versus the allure of having systems that dynamically configure things so that you don't have to put the planning in. Malco, I think you just brought us full circle to systems that we can't test before we put them out, right? So yeah. So maybe that's the control <laughs> appropriate for our constraints. Thanks for tuning into this month in security. If you liked what you heard or what you saw, please consider subscribing or click like or leave a review even. Let us know what you thought. Tune in next month as we cover a brand new report from F5 Labs, as well as a conversation with the new leads for the OWASP Top 10 for Machine Learning. Once again, I'm Aubrey with Dev Central. Thanks and have a great day.